Welcome to Uncommons. I'm your host, Nate Erskine-Smith. We know that the COVID crisis and the associated lockdown measures have taken their toll on our society in a number of different ways, including a serious impact on our mental health. On this episode, I'm joined by Senator Stan Kutcher to talk mental health and the COVID crisis, because before his appointment in 2018, Senator Kutcher was an expert in mental health. He has served in his career as the department head of psychiatry at Dalhousie University and as the director of WHO's Collaborating Center in Mental Health Policy and Training. Senator, thank you for joining me. Thank you for asking me. Appreciate it very much. You have an expertise in mental health, and in the course of this pandemic, obviously it's really important that we physically distance and we continue to do so, but those physical distancing measures don't come without cost, and not only economic, but they also come with their own health costs, specifically isolation and mental health. Well, you're right. I think it's really important when we talk about mental health to make sure that we uh, are clear about what we're talking about. I think it's really important to know that mental health is not about feeling good or feeling happy all the time. That's not what it's about at all. In fact, mental health is having the emotional, cognitive and behavioral capacities to deal with existential challenges or opportunities. So what what life throws us, we have to deal with. There's no getting around that. Our lives aren't what we want them to be. Our lives are something that we have to react to. And the reason that we have emotions, one of the reasons, is so that it alerts us to challenges and opportunities in our lives. And the reasons we have so many different nuanced emotions is because life throws us lots of different stuff. It's a fantasy, unfortunately, fairly widely held, that mental health means feeling good. Actually, appropriate negative emotions are a sign of really good mental health, not a sign of problematic mental health. So for example, if somebody that you love dies and you're not feeling sad and upset, then you're not having good mental health because feeling really sad and really upset when someone you love dies is the proper and appropriate response to that situation. So to put it fairly then, in the course of this pandemic, it would make good sense and it is consistent with good mental health that people would be feeling worse and and stressed and feeling sad and and feeling depressed to a certain degree about the inability to connect with family and friends is just one example. But of course, business owners would be facing struggles and people who have lost employment income would be facing additional struggles and serious struggles. But how we cope with those struggles is really how we ought to measure mental health. First of all, I want to agree with you. It's our capacity to cope adapt and use these experiences to build even better adaptive skills. That's called building resilience. But but also, I think it's really important that we unpack a little bit about what these emotional responses are. So we hear the words anxiety and depression thrown around all the time. Those are very generic terms, which hide many more nuanced terms that are more appropriate for telling us how we are actually feeling. Like we use anxiety instead of worried, concerned, distressed, upset. We use depressed instead of demoralized, disgruntled, disappointed. Disgruntled and disappointed are very, very different emotions, and and they mean different things. And we have to use a different response to them. When we call all these things generic, we first of all confuse them with the mental disorders of the same name. But then we also get really upset by, oh, so many people say they're anxious. Well, when you look at the surveys, the surveys only give you one thing. Are you anxious? Yes or no. They don't ask you if you're worried or you're concerned or disappointed or whatever. So we don't have a really good measure of what's happening, being able to differentiate 
normal emotional states and useful and adaptive from ones that aren't. Now, there are clearly groups of Canadians who are struggling more, whose adaptive capacities are being overwhelmed, but they are often people who are the most vulnerable. This is the people that you were just talking about, people who've lost their jobs, people who are marginalized, who are living in poverty, people who are living with family violence. So those are the people that are really, really, really struggling. It becomes a challenge then for policymakers where if I take the inability to connect with friends and family, and so I'm not going to speak to the horrible conditions of the five private nursing homes where deplorable conditions and completely unacceptable, but even for seniors in more acceptable conditions, they're still facing challenges where they are no longer able to emotionally connect in the same way, maybe not access to the same technologies and and can't see friends and family in quite the same way. And the healthy response even there is still an unfortunate health response. And so as a policymaker, when we look to mental health, how do we distinguish then from Yes, they're coping, but we still want to make sure that they feel better and we want to address that circumstance versus they're not coping and we then want to make sure we're building resiliency. And therein lies the rub. It's such a difficult, difficult thing to do with the kind of structures and capacities and capabilities that we have. And it's sometimes it's very, very hard to find where that line is. So that what we try to do and some of the things that I have seen happening, which are good, is we try to make alternatives available to people. And some people are better able to use those alternatives than others. So so let me say, I'm not giving a shout out to any organization here, but let me just say Kids Help Phone. So, so there is an alternative for young people to be able to use electronic means to communicate to a helping trusted adult. Well, one of the reasons that they're able to do that is that they're tech savvy and that it's, it's for them is a normative way of communicating. Secondly is for many of those kids, they would have had that capacity face to face with their teachers or with their counselors or with the, with the coach or the, or, or the band master, whatever. But when this isolation is happening, they don't have that outlet. So at least they can go to the phone to do that. That's much more difficult for our elderly people. So who, who, who aren't used to that way of communicating, who, who aren't facile with that capacity, who, who, who frankly may not have the skill sets to use that technology. So I, I think that we have done well in some parts of that, but we haven't done as well as we could have done in other parts of that. And with your experience, I'm going to make you the Minister of Health. And what would you have done or what would you like to see happen to better address mental health in the course of this crisis. Okay. Well, geez, my goodness gracious, thanks for the elevation. <laughs> <laughs> Might be a demotion. I'm not sure. You're, uh, you're no, now a senator. You don't have to get reelected. That, 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 <laughs> this is true. This is true. This is absolutely true. And uh, the, the, please don't downplay the expertise and the quality of the parliamentarians. That everyone that I know is outstanding, and and I don't know you except for this time. But uh, your resume not is quite don't worry. impressive. <laughs> 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 impressive. Required very impressive. And all of us are trying to do the best thing that we can do in the circumstances that we have. And we, we appreciate that. Uh, it's not a perfect world. We're not perfect people. We just want to do what's right. What I'm going to say is, is, is in no way a, a negative comment on the current minister or previous ministers or whoever will be the, the, the next minister, because we all live in these terribly complex worlds. But the first thing that, that I would like to have and would like to do is invest in really good data collection. So we actually know what's happening out there. 
when I see some of the polls that are, are currently reporting, I mean, they're, they're, they're surveys, but they're not designed to give us that fine, nuanced information that we need. How do we differentiate between normal emotional distress, as we were talking about, and people who are having real problems? How do we identify those subgroups, those racialized minorities, the people in poverty? How do we identify who they are and what their needs are? We need to start from really good data. The second thing that I would do then is look very, very carefully at from what we know already, who are the most marginalized people who are most negatively impacted by this? And that's people with serious mental illnesses. That's people with chronic physical illnesses who also have a mental disorder, a comorbid state. Those are people who always have had difficulty accessing really good mental health care it's not that we don't have ways of improving that access. We do. We're just not putting them into place. So we, we tend to wait for people to come to us instead of go to them. So I would look at and work with provinces and territories to improve our capacity to reach the people who are most in need. We know who they are. How do we get to them? Can we use mobile crisis teams? Can we use individuals who are in the community at food banks? People can help out in the food bank. So those are the kind of, of proactive interventions that I would put into place. The second thing that I think, uh, or the third thing, and, and I think this is being done, is helping Canadians access electronic means. Now, this is a, both a boon and a problem. Some people can access, but other people can't. If you happen to be in an indigenous community that doesn't have broadband in, internet, you can't access it. So, so that's not fair. Uh, so I would put money into that infrastructure. The other thing about it is that there is a whole plethora of these electronic interventions that are out there, but we don't know which work. We don't know which ones are effective. We don't know which ones are safe, but they're all out there and people are vending them. One of the things that I would really put into place is a system within Health Canada that would actually evaluate and regulate, license different kinds of electronic interventions so that we would be sure that the ones we are using are actually having the impact that we want them to have. So those are some of the things that I would certainly focus on doing. And if we take a step back from the pandemic and we look at the mental health supports more broadly from the federal government, we see a partnership with provinces to deliver healthcare, but often on delivering reactive support for physical healthcare. And at a recent convention in Halifax, liberal members at least were overwhelmingly supportive of expanding our healthcare supports to include mental health. Do you have a sense of what that looks like? Are you supportive of, of that move? And it seems increasingly clear that we are imperfectly at times, but providing substantive support for those who maybe have broken a leg, but those who are suffering real depression aren't able to access the same supports in, in a universal accessible way. I, I totally agree with you. Look, I graduated from medical school in the 70s. And when I graduated from medical school, the number one problem in this country in the mental health area was rapid access to best available evidence-based mental health care. It is still the number one problem. We have come a long way in becoming aware of the needs. We've, become, we've come a long way in being aware of the problems. I say enough awareness. Let's put our efforts into improving that rapid access to effective care for people who need it most. We have developed some very useful ways of addressing those needs. Let's make sure that they get put into place. The other thing, however, that we need to do is that we have made a lot of advances 
in identifying what kind of interventions, what kind of treatments can help people get better. But we have sort of plateaued in that in the last decade and a half. And I really think we need to retool our research capacities and start looking for new ways of intervening, new ways of assisting people, not only so that when they get ill that we can help them get better, but that we can comfortably say we can prevent this from happening. We talk a lot about, about, a lot about that, but the actual evidence for what we can do to actually stop this from happening, that's not there. We sometimes talk about preventative healthcare, but not enough. My wife is a nutrition professor and chef, and she is happy that we've got the new Canada Food Guide, but thinks we have to operationalize in a more significant way that the way we eat is a significant part of our health, both physical and, and mental health, and would go a long way towards more preventative healthcare. And then I've also spoken to Senator Pate recently, but also to former senators Art Eggleton and Hugh Siegel about uh, basic income and looking at poverty itself as a key indicator of one's health. And while we don't know all of the solutions, are there particular preventative solutions that you think we ought to be focused on? Well, I think that there are a couple of things arising from what you've just said. First of all, that we know that broadly the social determinants of health are important for all health. And when I talk about health, I don't separate mental from physical. The brain happens to be attached to the body. It's a good relationship <laughs> that they have. And, and, and what's good for your bicep is good for your brain and vice versa. So, so the things that you do to keep physically healthy actually are the things that you need to do to keep mentally healthy. So we've got to stop this dichotomization because it doesn't serve anybody well. These social determinants, poverty, living with violence, those kind of issues, they are have the largest, largest negative impact on health, whether it's physical or mental. We really got to do better in that. Then the second thing that I would add on top of that is the stuff that your wife is talking about is, is crucial, but I would reframe that in a slightly different way and say, what's the health literacy that we have to have? What do we have to know about eating healthy? What right. do we have to know about the right kind of sleep? What do we have to know about the right kind and how much exercise? What do we have to know about social relationships? We can learn that stuff. There's health literacy, there's mental health literacy that come together. So I think that we really need to enhance both our focus on the social determinants of health, but also on the improving the health and mental health literacy of the population. Because once you give people the tools and that they understand that their literacy is a tool that gets them health, and then they will apply it. So we have to give them that opportunity and encourage them to take that knowledge and understanding and apply it to themselves. So there is a structural problem, and then there is a competency development challenge. I have long thought if I were ever a politician at the provincial level, I, I would personally find it very interesting to look at our education system and build up not only civic literacy, not only financial literacy, but also health literacy. And we could have such a significant impact in reframing curricula for our kids along those lines to help them succeed in life and not only succeed to avoid the stresses when it comes to filing one's taxes, but also succeed as a matter of preventative health care to know sleep, physical exercise, and ways of eating and cooking for oneself. When it comes to young people, we, you mentioned the some of the positive benefits of technology for young people in accessing mental health health services. Technology, though, in the course of my committee work in the last parliament, 
does sometimes come at a cost where we see technology and some of the applications and platforms specifically, they are designed to encourage greater use and the notifications are designed to encourage people to participate more and more and more. And we see some problems with particularly youth mental health, but mental health more broadly with the use of social media. And do you have any insights as to how we might curb those problems and how we might better address them? Technology is a tool. It's a tool that lets us interact with our environment in ways that we choose to interact with that environment with, whether it's a social environment, a physical environment, doesn't matter what it is. Technology is simply a tool. So if, if I go back to, to the, sort of the last disruptive technology that we went through, it's the automobile. When, when the automobile came in as a technology, it revolutionized our social geography. The suburbs, the shopping malls, none of that was there before the car happened. It allowed us to move goods at huge distances rapidly. So the capacity to bring fruit from Florida or, or from California to Toronto or to Halifax or wherever, all of a sudden was there. It changed our dietary habits. It just changed everything about our society. And we had to learn how to control the technology. When the automobile first came, there were no streetlights. There were, there were no sidewalks. There were no rules of the road. You didn't have to have a license to operate a vehicle. They didn't even have windshield wipers. <laughs> you know, so, 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 and, and what we have done over the years, we have had a trade-off between the damage that the technology has caused to our society and the benefits that it has brought to our society. So we have, a, we have accepted a certain death rate on our highways, but as we got better handle on that technology, we put in seatbelts, we put in airbags, we, we changed the ratio of what we would expect as the negative impact changed. So I see these social media tools exactly the same way. They are simply a technology. We have to take control of the technology, not the technology taking control of us. We have to decide how we are going to regulate that technology, how we were going to use it so that the ratio of good to harm is actually greater than it was. But it takes us time to figure out how to do that. It takes political will. And that, as you and I both know, is challenging because there are great forces which are pulling in lots of different directions with that technology. So if I, for example, say recently some schools have just banned cell phones in the school, a big outcry, but they did it. And so guess what? Hi. So, you know, sometimes it takes a bit of courage to make those big steps. So, so where I see us with this technology, it's brand new. I mean, in, in, in the scope of human history, it's a, it's a blink of an eye. And we are now in the process of learning that technology and figuring out where the cost-benefit ratios are and what we as a society will accept as an appropriate cost-benefit ratio. And I think that's what we're in right now. I think that's right. And there are lots of smart people identifying some of the costs. And then the question becomes, can we eliminate those costs without undermining the benefits? Because of course, there are benefits to a greater connected world. On cell phones, I, I visit a lot of classes here in Beaches East York and talk about politics and try to convince young Canadians to care about politics, sometimes successfully, sometimes not. But I was in a class at Melbourne Collegiate and uh, it's interesting to watch the different teachers. Some allow cell phones in the, or did allow cell phones in their class 
classroom. This one teacher, if he saw the cell phone, he would confiscate it for the rest of the day. And no kids used the cell phone in his class. <laughs> and it worked. So, uh, so you know, different, different rules uh, can be more effective than others. You were the director of the WHO Center on Mental Health Policy. Now, the WHO has been critical in many ways in the course of this pandemic for the global response. And yet, we've seen politicians, conservative largely here in Canada, but not only. We've seen commentators criticize the WHO's efforts in relation to this pandemic. Should Canada distance itself from the WHO? Do you see it's there were too many problems when you were there? Or do you think there are problems? Yes, but these are problems that we should double down our efforts to solve. Well, first of all, I was a director of the WHO Collaborating Center here in Canada and not, 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 uh, not, gotcha. not in Geneva, although, although I did spend some time in Geneva for sure. Uh, and also with the Pan American Health Organization in Washington. The WHO is a United Nations agency. And as a United Nations agency, it has all the strengths and weaknesses that the United Nations has. The WHO is fortunate in that it has has some of the world's top minds uh, working in the confines of that uh, organization, but not everyone in the organization is in that category. Also, outside the WHO are, are organizations at universities and in governments who have outstanding and, and, and incredibly good people. And so the WHO has a network of these people that depending on the area, the interest, the, the challenge that they're facing, they will call on those experts and they bring them together. And that's all really, really good. It really, really helps us. Now, the other side of that is the WHO has, like the United Nations, the weaknesses that the United Nations have. And that is the way that different member states relate to that organization. And so when member states have particular ideologies or that when member states have perfect self-interest, they will relate to the organization in a very different way. And it doesn't matter, and I want to be clear about this, which member state it is, they act the same way. So people will say, oh, China's acting this way. Well, the United States acts that way as well. Britain acts that way as well. Russia acts that way as well. So, so the big, uh, powerful nations, they always are balancing their own self-interest against their responsibility to a, to a UN agency. And this is a complex balance, and sometimes it swings one way, and sometimes it swings another. What I don't see is an alternative. It's not perfect by a long shot, but it's the best we have. In fact, it's all that we have. And, and we have to live with it and we have to work with it warts and all. We have to try to make it better, but always realizing that it's always going to be a UN agency. That being said, I think we've ha we have a lot to learn from this pandemic, that we can strengthen the work that the WHO is doing. We can make it more reflective of a collaboration of agencies. We can make it less dependent on money that comes from member states so that it will be able to function a bit more independently. And I noticed that the WHO Foundation actually will come on board. I also think that better collaboration with various public health agencies around the world, not that there isn't some, but you know there is, is also important for the WHO. So the signal that I've seen from WHO is that they will welcome a review of how they've handled the pandemic. That's really good. But that's got to be a review done so that we can do it better next time. And gosh, there will be a next time. 
and not a review in order to hammer an ideology against some other member state that you just happen not to like right now. And that's the reality. I saw some of the same issues, both positive and negative, with the Interparliamentary Union, which is sort of a sister organization to the UN, but instead of government to government, it's parliament to parliament. I had the opportunity very early on in parliament. I joked that I could retire right away. I attended in February of 2016 down at the United Nations building in New York to participate in a debate on drug decriminalization and got to argue alongside a Mexican senator who's now the speaker of their house there about the need for drug decriminalization for simple possession. And we have seen cannabis legalization. I've called for drug decriminalization for simple possession writ larger and the government's not yet gone there. But most recently, I've had a number of very smart people come to me on the issue of psychedelics and allowing for the use of psychedelics, not only for end of life purposes, for quality of life and palliative care, but also for mental health more broadly. And I wonder with the experience you have, what you think about cannabis legalization, given the potential for health effects for cannabis use, particularly with adolescents. But I also wonder what you think about the use of psychedelics for improving people's mental health and where the research is there. Well, let me go back a step. I think that's a really, really, really important important question, but I just want to put it into a bit of a context first, is that a healthy brain is a healthy mind is mental health. <laughs> so you have to have a healthy brain in order to have mental health. And, and, and those things like nutrition and sleep and exercise, the way that they improve mental health is they make our brains healthier. And there's all sorts of good neuroscience around that. Now, that being said, any substance that enters the brain has the potential to impact how the brain functions. And it can impact the way that the brain functions in all sorts of myriads of different ways that we don't know because we, we haven't done the research that's necessary to tell us how it can do that. It can impact the brain in negative ways. They, for some substances, can destroy neurons, for example. Other substances can, can get in the, in, in the way of the signaling pathways. And so it'll change the way that the brain functions and the outcome of that change will be in a negative direction. Other substances may change and they all, any substance changes the way that the brain acts, will change the brain and have it act in a slightly different way. And that may be a more beneficial way. It may be beneficial in some ways, and not beneficial in others because no substance that comes in into the brain has only a beneficial or only a toxic effect. They all have a balance of these different kinds of effects. So for anything that has a, this benefit, it has this side effect. And, you know, so, that, so these things all work like that. And that's even before you get to the conversation about usage, because one could use alcohol very modestly and not have a negative impact upon one's brain and actually have a positive social benefit. Whereas if you overuse and you, and you overconsume, then you have that negative health impact. So the usage rates matter so much as well. Totally. Or even the way that you use the chemical. If you exactly. take nicotine in your body through a cigarette, the impact of that nicotine on your brain is so different than if you take it as a patch right? or, 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 or if you smoke a pipe. It's, it's so Paracelsus in the 1400s said that the difference between a treatment and a poison was the dose. Exactly. <laughs> right? The dose, duration. These things are horribly complex. 
where we have seen in the past decades for ideological reasons, we have seen that the research into psychoactive substances stopped when it should have been, in my opinion, increased. And one of the challenges that we had with cannabis was we had no idea what impact it would have on developing brains. We had hypotheses, we had concerns, but a result of that was because we didn't have a good idea because the research that we needed to have done 10, 15 years ago hadn't been done because of ideological reasons that stop funding for research. So my thoughts on your question are, let's explore in controlled research environments, starting with the way that we always do this with animal studies, and then working our way up into human studies and try to have a much better understanding which of these chemicals are actually likely to be more helpful to more people and in what way? And which of them are likely to be more harmful to more people and in what way? And it's unless we open up that kind of inquiry, that curiosity-driven inquiry, we're never going to know the answer to that. And when we don't know the answer, we fall back into the ideological camps. It's good. It's bad. It's good. It's bad. That's not the, that's not the issue. The issue is what does it do? For whom does it benefit? And whom does it harm? And if we ask the question that way, then it opens the door for us to actually explore. There's a whole myriad of things out there that might be harmful, or might be helpful. We don't know. Right. You're so right about the ideology getting in the way of research and progress. There's nascent research on psychedelics and mental health, but specifically as it relates to people's ability to change their habits and to prevent addictive behavior out of John Hopkins. And it seems legitimate and promising, but because we are talking about illicit substances in the Canadian framework, there will be obstacles, unnecessary obstacles to continuing that research and to making what might be very positive in people's lives available because we have that ideology and framework that these are drugs and drugs are bad. Well, there's a big difference between thinking of something as an illicit drug for social purposes and thinking of something as an interesting chemical to understand what it does in the brain. So I think we have to look at it at the, as the latter. And then once we, we understand that, then we can bring in our social discussions about is this right, wrong, all those other things and look at what the costs are, both positive and negative in society writ large. But if we always come at something from starting with an ideological construct, it doesn't take us very far. Why did you want to be a senator in the first place? And how did you go about becoming a senator in, in this more independent process? The, the thing that really attracted me was the independence. I had looked at the Senate quite askance <laughs> previously in the previous government when the prime minister said, time for a, a, a reboot of the Senate. I looked at it, well, we'll see how that happened. And I, I didn't apply right away. I wanted, you know, was interested to see what was happening. And besides, I was busy, busy, busy doing all sorts of other things. For me, I had come to a career point where I had accomplished what I could accomplish in my research, in my policy work, and that my work had plateaued. So I also have a background that's outside of medicine. I am a dropout out of a PhD in history. I have tremendous interest in foreign affairs. I have a real deep desire to improve the society that we live in. My parents were refugees uh, after World War II. They came with nothing. And for them, Canada was the promised land. So I always grew up with that 
piece of, and I grew up in, in a household where my father was a clergyman, where service to your community was paramount and, and, and was so important. And the realization of the good things that the country was, but the better things that it could be were always there. So I had been talking with with a number of friends, including friends who were in the who were in the center at the time, and and they encouraged me. Well, why have you thought about applying? And I thought about it, talked about it with my wife, and thought about it, and <laughs> it was sort of back and forth, back and forth. And then I thought, well, might as well apply and see what happens. So I did, and then I forgot about it, and and then all of a sudden, you know, ceases calls. Right? <laughs> Could have been worse. And I I can remember like one of the things that they asked they wanted me to submit a list of all the places I had traveled outside of Canada in the last decade. Well, I work in international health. <laughs> Probably 80 different countries that I've been in and they want where did you go for what purpose for how long? I mean, it was like come on. <laughs> then there was this process that comes comes in and it's a, it's a, to me it was like a black box and then <laughs> I was I was teaching in Belize. And it was before Christmas in 2018. And I get a phone call and a person says, the prime minister's office calling. Would you be able to speak to someone in the prime minister's office tomorrow? And I said, sure. I mean, whom am I speaking to? And they said, we're not going to tell you. I said, well, I guess a clue maybe. (laughs) So then then I'm teaching and the phone rings. It wasn't at the right time. I thought, oh, geez. So I excused myself. I went back and it was prime minister. And and he asked me if I would be a member of the Senate. And and, uh, we had a a lovely chat for about a half hour. I had met him before a number of times, and he had been very supportive of the mental health work that, that we've been doing here. And one of the young people that worked in my team was, was a photographer, and he had met her. Her name was is Stella. He'd met her five or six years ago, seven years ago. And he asked me, how is Stella doing? Come on. He's, he's a good politician. And then I go back in to teach, and the people said, what was that all about? I, said, I can't tell you. <laughs> Is there, with your focus on mental health previously, if you wake up seven years from now and you're at the end of your parliamentary career, will it have been mental health that you will want to have seen improved over the course of those seven years? What I would like to see is better use of science to inform policy. And I approach mental health in that way. It's science designed to improve the lives of people who have a mental illness and science designed to improve the lives of people, period. But it's science. And it's that scientific reasoning and that ability to use scientific method and best available research to help drive policy. I'm not naive enough to think it's the only thing that drives policy, but I would like to see more of it uh, being used in driving policy. And I'd like to see our colleagues in the House and in the chamber to be more cognizant of the value that that type of reasoning can bring to our decision-making. Because I think our decision-making becomes more robust. It becomes less dependent uh, on lobbying. It becomes more comfortable that we may not be making the the right decision, but it's better than making a worse decision. Uh, so so I, that that's what I hope. If, if there's any legacy that I can leave, that is what the legacy that I hope that I can at least nudge towards. 
Well, I hope you are successful in those efforts. Obviously, runs up against challenges where politicians in many respects are loath to change their minds, that that is for some reason perceived as a sign of weakness, even though one would think that where one learns more, looks to the evidence, discovers that one had been wrong previously because of the evidence and changes one's mind in accordance with the new evidence, that should be a sign of strength, but our politics doesn't reward that always. And I think also up against the challenges of just politics writ large, where electoral considerations oftentimes seem to get in the way of evidence-based decision-making. But I hope that the independent Senate is, is a leader on this front, absent some of those pressures, those partisan pressures. And I, I look forward to working together with you to make that kind of thinking more common, I, I suppose. Well, thank you for that. And, and, and I, I would very much uh, enjoy doing that with you and, and with people of like minds. I, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think the Senate is an easier place to start simply because uh, it is more independent and it is, will evolve towards more independence, whatever that will look like. I think there are two things around that. One is that it will be, it will be independent of party caucus decision-making, driven decision-making, and I think that's a good thing. The, the, the second thing, and this is my own opinion, or shared by others or not shared by others, is that uh, structurally it will become more independent. It won't be a government and opposition, government and opposition model, but it will be a here is legislation. My guess is there will be four or five groups of people in the Senate who come together for various similarities, and, and that the, the debate will be robust and, and, and challenging and, and respectful. And then it'll come down to what it usually comes down to, who, who, who votes on one side, who votes on another side. But I think that that process, because it will be independent of the caucus model and because it will be independent of that structural uh, government opposition model, will enhance the value of the Senate as a chamber of sober second thought. Back to its original purpose and hopefully enhancing its ability to serve its original purpose. I, I really appreciate your time. I, I appreciate all of your work on, on mental health. I think Canadians increasingly are waking up to the fact that it's health together, physical and mental, and we can't separate the two. And we've provided great supports for physical health, and we can do the same for mental health. So I appreciate all of your advocacy efforts even before you became a senator, and I look forward to working together. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Uncommons. Remember to subscribe at uncommons.ca for future episodes and recommend future guests and topics on social media at BYNA.